All right, good morning, everybody. Hope you've had a fantastic week. I know we've got a lot of people that are sick and hurting right now, and our prayers go out to all of them. And if you're watching online, uh, we are praying for you. Hope that God will bring you healing and bring us back to us as soon as possible. I also know we've got a lot of visitors here this morning, and we are so excited that you're here with us. Hope that you've uh, been made to feel welcome and comfortable, and I hope you'll be challenged and encouraged by the lesson this morning. We started a lesson last week, and we split it up into two halves, talking about how it is that we read the Bible. Not why we read the Bible, but how we read the Bible. In other words, when we open Scripture and we begin to read it, what kinds of things do we do we use or what kind of tools do we employ to make sure that we are properly applying those scriptures to our lives. And so we're going to continue that study this morning. Uh, quickly, if you were not here last week, encourage you to take some time later this week to watch the first lesson so that this one makes more sense. And you can find that either on our Facebook page, on our YouTube channel, or on our website, which is mvchurch.org. But I encourage you to take a, a few minutes to watch that so that this might make a little more sense. Before we get into the lesson this morning, I just want to say a big thank you to everybody who worked so hard to make Friday afternoon our trunk or treat a success. It was great getting to serve the families of our community, and I had a blast personally. I love trying to figure out what is going through the minds of kids. Right? And sometimes it's hilarious, sometimes it's terrifying, but it's never dull. And so Paisley and I are at our trunk, and she was Snow White, and so Robin and I made a costume, and if you saw it, you know it was homemade. Uh, I was supposed to be Snow White's poison apple, right? Well, Paisley got excited, and she was off most of the time, and so I was just a lonely apple out of context. Um, but what was interesting is kids would come up to me, and I would have, we had lollipops, and I would just hold them out, and they would come up with a big smile on their face, open their bags, and in the candy would go, right? And then I would get a chance to tell them how cool they looked and ask them about their costumes. But if Paisley was there and she had the lollipops, for whatever reason, the kids would come up, and they were like totally put off by the fact that another child was trying to give them candy. And so they would come with like trepidation and distrust and they would come up and they would kind of open the bag and she would go to put it in and then they would close the bag and they weren't real sure what was going on. And it just kept happening. I have no idea why, but I want to tell you this one little blonde girl comes up and she comes right up to Paisley and she's got her bag and she opens it and she's not real sure. And Paisley goes to put the candy and she shuts it. And then there's just this awkward standoff between the two of them for like 20 seconds. And they're both looking dead in each other's eyes. And finally Paisley goes, do you want the candy? And the little girl goes, I'm going to need you to put that back. <laughs> I, have, I have no idea what it was about, but I just really, really love kids. And we've got some awesome kids here and in our neighborhood. And so just thank you for taking time to serve those kids and giving them a safe place to celebrate this week. So... Last week we talked about what our hermeneutic is, and what I mean by that is for those of us who are in Churches of Christ and are part of what is called the Historical American Restoration Movement, there is kind of a specific way that we have landed on throughout time to read Scripture, and I summarized that quickly last week, but we often find it abbreviated or illustrated this way. We, we call it C-E-N-I, and that stands for Commands examples, and necessary inference. And I walked you through what that kind of looks like on a practical level last week, but I was also very transparent with you in saying that there are shortcomings to any kind of specific approach towards reading the Bible. Any kind of what we call hermeneutic, that's the fancy way of talking about how we read the Bible, there's always going to be shortcomings specifically because we are people. 
And the shortcomings come from within us. All of us bring to Scripture our own biases, our own prejudices, our own presuppositions, uh, our own baggage. And we lay that over Scripture a lot of times, and it becomes the shortcoming in any specific approach towards reading the Bible. But this is our historical hermeneutic. When we read the Bible, we're looking for commands. What is God directly commanded for us to do? We're looking for examples. That becomes especially relevant for us as we try to establish what our, uh, our church culture is going to look like and what we're going to do when we come together as a church on Sunday mornings. We open up the book of Acts, for example, and we say, okay, this is what the early church did. Let's try to follow in their example and do those same things. And then we make inferences all the time in Scripture. There's not necessarily a command, and there's not an exact example given in Scripture, but we infer from what's there and sometimes what's not there what, what God wants from us and what will make him happy with us. So that's our specific hermeneutic. I want to talk about this real quick. We touched on it last week, but in John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40, John t- or excuse me, Jesus tells the Pharisees, he says, you search the Scripture." Because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And this is what we talked about last week, is the idea that it it is a reality that you can know Scripture and not fully know God. That you can read Scripture and not see God truly in Scripture. And we see that reality played out in the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. They knew Scripture. They had high regard for Scripture, and yet they didn't recognize Jesus when he walked among them. They didn't recognize him for who he was. And so, all of that just to say, as we move forward in our lesson this morning, how do we make sure that we don't fall into that same trap? How do we safeguard ourselves so that in our own hermeneutic, in our own approach towards Bible reading, we don't end up knowing the Bible but somehow not knowing God? What can we do to make sure that that doesn't happen in our own walk with our Creator? And so I would like to suggest just a simple addition to our traditional hermeneutic. And some of you might think, well, this is rather intuitive. We already know that. But we don't often articulate it. And I think it's important that we do. And so I would just illustrate it this way. Let's call it CENI+, the new and improved version, right? Okay, so on top of commands and examples and necessary inference... The thing that we need to talk about more is the character of God. That all three of those things are built upon a foundation of our basic understanding of who God is. Who is God? That's what we need to to know. If we're going to approach Scripture correctly, we have to ask the question, who is God? The way we read the Bible... Okay, follow me here. The way we read the Bible is determined not just by what we think the Bible is, but whom we think the Bible is about. Here's what I mean by that. We often quote this passage, right? 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. All scripture is, some translations have inspired. That's a good translation, but I, I love the way the ESV illustrates this here. All scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We quote that because we're trying to get people to understand what the Bible is. Is that important? Yes. Vitally important. 
Why is it important? Well, think about it on a practical level. If you have an opportunity to share the story of Christ with someone, a, a coworker, a neighbor, a stranger on the street, and you invite them for a Bible study, and you're sitting down at the table together, and you both got the Scripture in front of you, but you are reading the Scripture with the assumption that this is the inspired Word of God, and they're reading the same Scripture, but their assumption is that it's just a collection of myths, and it has no inspiration behind it, is it going to be easy for you to, to arrive at the same conclusion? No, because you've got different understandings of what Scripture is. And so a lot of times when we talk about how we read the Bible, we focus on, and in fact, I think we fixate on what the Bible is. A lot of our modern-day approach towards apologetics has to do with this discussion. It's, it's establishing to non-believers that the Bible actually is the Word of God. I'm not discounting that. I think it's vitally important. But one thing we don't do enough of is talk about who the Bible is about. It's like we take for granted, obviously, that the Bible is about God. If I ask you the question right now, who is God? That seems like a silly thing to ask a, a church full of people, right? Well, you're here because you know who God is. But I'm going to ask you the question anyway. Who is God? If someone asks you that question, and they ask you because they genuinely want to know because they don't know what the Bible teaches about our God. How would you answer that question? How would you answer it in a succinct and short manner? Right? Instead of, well, let, let, me, let us begin in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, right? I mean, that's a good place to start. But if you really want someone in just a snapshot to get to understand who their God is, how would you explain that to them? Do you have a grasp of that? Robin just got a, a new iPhone. She, you ever do that thing where you drop your iPhone and it's very gentle, but somehow the entire screen manages to shatter in a million pieces? Right? She did that. So we got her a new iPhone. And I'm trying to, as I was ordering a new phone, I thought, well, you know, we've been taking a lot of pictures lately. I better see how many we have to make sure I get her the right amount of storage. Right? We have 18,000 pictures in our iPhone. And like 98% of those are of the same little blonde-headed girl. We used to take no pictures, then we became parents, and suddenly we take all the pictures, right? Because everything must be photographed. And we have, I think, 1,400 videos on top of that. So her storage was maxed out. So I get her this new phone. But I'm looking through and I'm like, surely we can delete some of these, right? And some of them were. They were just random pictures we took to remind ourselves of, like, parking spots in Disney, right? I don't need that anymore. I found the car after a long search, so I don't need that picture anymore. But a lot of them, I'm like, I don't want to get rid of this. I don't want to get rid of this. Because what happens? You scroll through pictures and what floods your mind? Memories, right? And I have a lot of favorite pictures of my daughter. Lots. But there's one that is my absolute favorite picture. It's the one when I see it, 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 it reminds me of everything about who she is. It was taken a couple years ago. I took a day off. I took her down to the art festivals with me in Laguna Beach. And it's a picture she's just sitting on a bench eating a potato chip. And I sent that picture to a friend that I had met when I used to do the art festivals who does watercolors. And she turned it into a painting. And it's perfect. And it's beautiful. And there's something special about it because it's not just like an image of my daughter. It's like I look at it and I see my daughter come to life in that picture, right? Imagine if there was a portrait of God. Now, has anyone ever seen God? No, Scripture tells us we have not, right? But what is the Bible but a portrait of God? And if you were going to take, imagine this is 18,000 pictures of God, and you were going to take one, and you were going to show your friend, and you say, you want to see who God is, this is my favorite picture of God. This is what he looks like. 
That's what I'm trying to get you to think about. When we approach Scripture, we need to be, understand that we are approaching portraits of our God and our Creator and our Savior. And it's this that is so essential to the way that we read the Bible, the way that you conceive of God, the way that you think about His character, the way that you understand Him as Creator, as Savior. Those things impact the way that you read the Bible just as much, if not more so, than what you think the Bible is. And so when we talk about our approach towards reading the Bible, we need to think about that. Well, here's another question. What does our hermeneutic communicate about the heart of God? If I just say to you, well, when you read the Bible, look for commands, examples, and necessary inference. That's an important kind of pattern for how we read Scripture and look for pattern within Scripture, but does it tell you anything about the heart of God? And that's the thing that I want us to focus on this morning. So when you think about those snapshots of God in Scripture, your favorite portraits of God in Scripture, and I ask you, pick one out for me that has shaped your understanding of God more than anything else. What would it be? What would that passage be for you that more than anything else has shaped the way you think about God and his character? For me as a young man, unequivocally, it was this passage right here, Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10 is a very interesting passage. In chapter 9, we find the inauguration of the priesthood. And of course, it's Aaron and his sons. He has four of them that are called by God to serve as priests or intercessors on Israel's behalf as they go about their priestly duties and specifically making sacrifices on behalf of Israel so that they can be found holy in the sight of their God. And chapter 9 ends with this great celebration because Aaron has offered the first sacrifices, fire comes from out from within the Holy of Holies, consumes the sacrifices, and it's God's way of saying, I approve of all of this, and everybody is celebrating. You know, this is awesome. God's presence is here. He's pleased with the sacrifices that we've made him. And then the very next thing that happens is Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. So here's two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, put fire on it, laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. And that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? And it should make you ask the question, what did they do? What is this unauthorized fire? And sometime, not today because we don't have time, but sometime, let's take a deeper walk through this passage because it's awesome and there's a lot here. But they offer unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. In other words, in other words he couldn't argue with God in that moment. He's a heartbroken father, but he could not argue with God in that moment. Now, I do want to take time to help you understand this passage sometime. But I'm just sharing this with you because I want you to see my conception of God, my understanding of who he was as a young man was shaped entirely by this passage. It terrified me. This is who God was more than anything else. God was a God who was ready to consume me with fire if I did stuff wrong. And I used to share this passage with people. I would go to youth camps and I would be invited to share the opening lesson at youth camp and this is where I went because hooray, God's going to kill you with fire. But the purpose was to try to get kids to understand you need to behave during worship service. We've got to do this right because this is who God is. Now, this is who God is. Don't get me wrong. 
Does this help us paint a picture of who God is? Does this tell us something important about God? Yes. What is the last statement here in verse 3? Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before his people, I will be glorified. Does that tell us something about the nature of God? Absolutely it does. But if this is my entire concept of God, is that this is who God is, then I will live in the fear of the Lord, but not a healthy fear of the Lord. I'm just going to live in terror of God. And I did for a long time. This shaped my understanding of who God was. And maybe some of you can relate. By the way, this isn't the only thing that happens in Leviticus 10. And when we get time to unpack it, we'll talk about it more. But you know what happens in the second half of this chapter? Aaron has two more sons. And they offer sacrifice. And they screw it up. But God does not consume them with fire. Isn't that interesting? We'll talk about why at another time. But there's more to this chapter. Here's another one that had a big impact on me and still does. Remember the story of poor Uzzah? David is moving the ark. He's not doing it in the way God told him to, but he's moving the ark. And it says, And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. This has always been a very problematic passage for me. And if you know the story, you probably know why, right? Because we read this story through the eyes of Uzzah. Poor Uzzah, what did he do? He reached out to touch the ark. Why? Because the cart stumbled. So what is he doing? He's trying to keep the ark from what? Falling off the cart, right? But what happens? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there besides the ark of God. And I read that, and I still read it, and I'm terrified by it. Now, fortunately, the ark isn't here, and I'm not in danger of touching it, right? But again, this was how I conceived of God entirely in my youth. God is the God who is ready to kill Nadab and Abihu and ready to struck Uzzah dead because they screwed up. And in my mind, then any misstep I make before my God, he's ready to do the same thing for me. That's not a God who's inviting me into covenant relationship with me. That's a God I'm scared to death of. And that had a big impact on me. And it has an impact on David here, by the way. Look what happens next. And he died there besides the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. That's a passage you have to wrestle with. There's a lot of places in Scripture that we have to wrestle with, right? We end up like Jacob, wrestling with God. And what happened to Jacob when he came away from that? He came away limping, right? Sometimes the Bible will do that to you. Walk away with a limp because you wrestle with God, and it leaves its mark, doesn't it? You know, on Friday night after uh, the trunk or treat, had an opportunity to spend some time with some of the youth group who went bowling together. And again, I got to sit in on class this morning. They are amazing young people, really amazing. Had an awesome, awesome time with them. And Stefan did a great job in class this morning walking him through 1 Samuel chapter 18. But there's some difficult things that happen in 1 Samuel chapter 18. And when we're bowling in this, mo- in this morning, both, they were, the kids were having fun kind of asking tough questions to the new preacher, right? And I love that. But they're asking questions not just because they're trying to be difficult, but because they really want to know the answers to these things. But the questions that are asking aren't the kinds of questions where you just go, book, chapter, verse, here's your answer, sit down next, Right? These are complicated, deep questions. They are wrestling with God through the questions that they're asking, trying to figure out who he is. 1 Samuel chapter 18. God sends an evil spirit to torment Saul. 
What is that about? That's a tough passage, right? And the reason they want to know what that's about is because they want to know how that should shape their understanding of who God is. What does this tell me about the character of God? Or big picture questions like, how can David be a man after God's own heart, the man God chose to be king because Saul wasn't very good at it, and yet be a man with so much blood on his hands? How does that make any sense? How do we come to terms with the fact that God's anointed one is a broken person just like I am? What does that teach us about the character of God? These are awesome questions, but they're big questions. And as our young people ask those questions, I hope that you will never deter them from doing that. Because what are they doing in asking those questions but trying to sort out in their own minds who is God? Trying to figure out what his character is like, and can they fully trust him or not? When we read the Bible, it's not just about what the Bible is, it's about who the Bible is about. And I'm asking you to think about that this morning. When you read scripture and you read about this God, who is he? Well, for me, he was this angry God who was ready to destroy and punish in any given second. Now, it's not that those passages aren't important. But if you're going to grab one portrait of God from Scripture, should it be those? In Ezekiel, or sorry, Exodus chapter 34, something amazing happens. Exodus chapter 34, and before I forget to do this, I want to give you homework for next week. Because I know the new preacher coming in, the best way to earn your favor is to preach really long sermons and give you homework. That's the way that you guys are going to like me, right? Okay. This isn't really heavy homework, okay? I just want to ask you to read. This, this week, I would love for you to set time aside to read Exodus chapters 32 through 34. To read them, preferably multiple times. And to meditate on those passages. And ask yourself the question, what are these stories telling me about the character of my God? And what we're going to do over the next few weeks is take a deeper dive into those stories. But I want to introduce one of them to you today because this is a portrait of God I should have had hanging in the mantle of my mind the whole time. And yet it's one I was wholly unfamiliar with. I knew Nadab and Abihu. I knew Uzzah. I did not know this story. And the reason I'm sharing this story with you isn't just because I think it's cool, but because the biblical writers thought it was cool. When I, if I ask you today, what is the most quoted verse in the Bible? What would you say? Honestly, I'm asking. John 3.16, probably easily, right? One of the most quoted verses in the Bible, right? Or Philippians 4.13 has gotten really popular lately. You know that one? I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. I'm sorry. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? We love to take it out of context. We like these verses that mean something to us, bumper sticker verses, some people call them, right? We pluck them out of context and we make them really important. Now, John 3.16 is a great one to do that with, right? If you're going to know one verse, that's a great one to know. But what about the Old Testament scriptures? What about the Hebrew Bible? What is the most quoted verse in the Hebrew Bible? It's actually this one. Today, yes, Victoria, you're right, the one that people quote the most. But Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 are the most quoted verses in the Bible, in the Bible. In other words, what I mean by that is, these are the verses other biblical authors quote more than any other verses. So what does that tell us? It tells us that as Israel as a people were forming a picture of God in their minds, this is the passage that meant more to them than any other. This is that snapshot of God that they had in their mind. 
This is the story of how God takes Moses up on the mountain to give him the law. And when Moses comes down, he finds that the children of Israel had done what? You remember the story? They were very innocent in all this. All they did was throw their gold jewelry in the fire, and what happened? Out popped a cow, right? You remember the story? At least that's the way they told it, right? They, they needed a visible God to worship because Moses was taking too long on the mountain. God is mad. Moses is mad. So mad he smashes the tablets, right? You remember the story? But something amazing happens. There's this interaction between Moses and God as Moses comes to terms with God's anger there. And Moses asks God to appear before him. And we're going to talk about all this in more detail in the next few weeks. But let me share these verses with you. God appears before Moses and God describes himself to Moses. Israel had seen God through all of the wonderful acts of redemption through everything that he had done as he's redeeming them out of Egyptian slavery. So they had seen God at work, but they hadn't come to terms with who God really was yet. And so God, in his own words, is describing himself to the children of Israel. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, invoking the divine name. Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, that's thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. A God abounding in steadfast love and mercy, but a God who has not forgotten justice. This is the portrait of God painted for us in the Hebrew Scriptures. And it's this passage that Israel used time and time again to remind themselves of who God was. And so all this just to invite you into a journey over the next few weeks as we dig deeper into this narrative in the book of Exodus that was so formative for Israel in understanding and coming to terms with who God was. Who is God? He is a God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That is who God is. And he's also the God who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And we have trouble with this because we see in this a conflict. On one hand, God is slow to anger and he's gracious and he's abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And on the other hand, he's a God who gets angry and judges and holds people accountable. But what we perceive as a conflict, that's just our perception. When Israel read this passage, they were reminded of how good God was. And unlike me reading Leviticus 10, growing scared of God, and being afraid to approach him, Israel read this and it made them want to approach him even more because it taught them to trust in the character of their God. And so I'm asking you this morning, as you read the Bible, who is the Bible about in your mind? Who is this God that we're reading about in the Bible? And so a, a few things to think about as we come to a close. Back to John chapter 5. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And yet, it is they that bear witness about me, and you refuse to come to me that you may have life. How do we avoid this? By truly understanding who God is and allowing his character to shape the way that we read scripture so that 
when our pattern, if we see a pattern in Scripture and it comes in conflict with the character of God, then we know that we've read that passage wrong. Simply put. What application does this have for us as God's people today, though? When we look at Scripture, what do we think we find in Scripture? Life, yes, but something more. Truth. We search the Scriptures because we think that in them we find truth. Do we? Do we find truth in Scripture? Yes, we do. But truth is not an abstract idea. Scripture tells us very clearly that truth is not just absolute. It's also personal. It's so personal, in fact, that it has a name. And his name is Jesus. And so what was that passage we read before the lesson started this morning? When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Hold on a second. How do we really know the God of the Bible? Through Scripture, yes, but only in so much as Scripture leads us to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is. It's through Christ that we come to know the Father. And it's only through him that we will ever find our way to the Father. So if we're looking for truth in Scripture, but the truth is not leading us to Christ and then through Christ to the Father, then something's gone horribly amok in our approach towards Scripture. Is the Bible a revelation from God? So go back to talking about what the Bible is. Is the Bible a revelation from God? I believe that. I hope you're here today because you believe that. The Bible is a revelation from God. That's the way it's portrayed. Is the Bible the ultimate revelation from God. And here's what i got to ask you to think carefully about what I'm saying. God has revealed himself most perfectly, not through scripture, but through the man, Jesus Christ. Some of you might want to say amen to that. Some of you might not be sure what I'm saying. Some of you might think the preacher gone cray cray. Thank you. Right? But let me say it again. God has revealed himself most perfectly, not through scripture, but through the man, Jesus Christ. That does not diminish the importance and the authority and the value of Scripture. It's just saying that Jesus didn't come to give us the Bible. We have the Bible to give us a relationship with Christ. Scripture leads us to God. And that's the way that we need to approach Scripture. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Do you remember this passage? Let me read it for you. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us, how? By his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is, listen to this, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. I just want you to see that when you read the Bible, it's not just about pulling out arbitrary rules that God has given you and taking command, example, and necessary inference to make sure you're following the rules correctly. It's not that that's not part of it. That's not all of it. 
Even the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, we tend to reduce it to just a list of rules, right? And it becomes confusing to us. We read those and we think, well, why did God give some of these laws? But do you remember the heart of the law? You shall be holy, God told his people, as I am holy. In other words, I want you to know who I am. And in living this particular way, you get to join me. In my character. And what's more is now Israel, in following those commandments God gave them, and illustrating God's character through their own lives, become an example to the nations around them, drawing all people back to God. And this is what Scripture is inviting us to do, to see God's character shine through. We need to allow that character to be our overall guiding approach towards Scripture. So that we make sure we're not reading the Bible and somehow not seeing him or finding him through our approach towards scripture. And so, one last passage here, I'll leave you with this. I was, I think, let me think, when my dad was the age I am now, about to turn 43 next month, I would have been an early teenager. And I can remember very clearly in the little congregation we were part of, suddenly when he would lead singing, you know, this is before slides, the songbook started to get further and further away, right? And I can remember thinking that was hilarious. And I made fun of him so much for that. Oh, you're getting old, you can't see well, right? And then he got reading glasses, and that made me make fun of him even more, right? Guess what I ordered two weeks ago? (laughs) (laughs) Reading glasses, and it's not so funny anymore, right? And specifically the reason I got reading glasses, because I've had contacts or glasses most of my life, I don't have great vision, but I noticed a couple, I think it was two Christmases ago, Robin got me this Bible I asked for, which was going to be awesome to preach out of, right? And I got up there the first Sunday, and I said, read with me, I have no idea what that says, because the font was too small. Right? And so I ordered reading glasses for the first time, and I put them on, and suddenly Scripture becomes clear. You know where I'm going with this, right? What glasses do we put on when we read Scripture? Right? Sometimes our glasses make it fuzzy, and it make it blurry, and it just complicates things, because we've got all this stuff we bring to the Bible and lay over it and try to read the Bible through all of our own garbage. But there are a pair of glasses we can put on that help us see Scripture clearly. When we read scripture through the lens of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, scripture becomes more clear than it could ever be otherwise. And I just remind you of what Paul told the church in Corinth when he talks about the fact that Israel, even to this day, if they don't understand who Christ is, when they read scripture, it's like they're reading scripture with a veil over their face. You can't see it clearly. You don't fully understand what it's all about. And he says, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, what happens? The veil is removed. If we allow Christ to be the lens through which we read the Bible, understanding that he is the one who most perfectly shows the Father to us, then we can safeguard ourselves against the temptation that we have to sometimes twist Scripture to fit our own agenda and instead free ourselves to allow Scripture to speak speak to us in such a way that we can truly not just understand the will of God, but allow the will of God to take root in our lives and shape us and mold us more and more into His image every day. And it's that approach towards Scripture that I would like to invite you to try. Ask yourself, 
who do I think God is? And how does that impact the way that I read the Bible? And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks is go back into that narrative in Exodus, Exodus 32 through 34, and talk about how it is that God introduces himself to Israel. What it is that they're learning about his character and how ultimately they learn to trust in him because of the way that he interacted with them in those stories. And so I invite you back to join us on that journey. And as we bring this lesson to a close this morning, some of you might be thinking, you know, I realize I, I don't really have a good picture of God in my mind. I'm not exactly sure who he is. And if you're in that situation this morning, don't be embarrassed by that. God is inviting you today, right here, right now, to know him more fully and to trust him more fully so that he can partner with you in impacting this world. And if you want to know more about the God who created you and more than that, about the God who sent his own son to die on your behalf so that you could live with him forever, if you want to know more about that God, we invite you to join us as we do that. We're going to stand and we're going to sing a song here in just a second. As we do that, I'd like you to think about your relationship with God. And if you have any need at all, any way that we can serve you or your family this morning, please give us the opportunity to do just that. Let's stand, let's sing this song, and if you need anything from us, won't you come forward and let us know what it is. Let's stand and sing. Savior, he can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save forever, author of salvation, heroes and conquered the grave, Jesus conquered the grave. So take me as you find me, all my fears and failures, fill my life Give my life to follow everything I believe in. Now I surrender. Savior, he can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save forever. Author of salvation, heroes and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. Shine your light and let the whole world see. We're singing for the glory of the risen King. Jesus, shine your light and let the whole world see. Singing for the glory of the risen King. Savior, He can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save forever. Author of salvation, heroes and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. Savior, he can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save forever. Author of salvation.
rose and conquered the grave. Jesus Christ.